I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love asking people what they're really into, what they've been thinking about right now, what they're obsessed with. One thing that recently brought them down a rabbit hole and not because their rabbit hole will become mine but really just for the pleasure of learning something new. Sometimes when I say I host a culture podcast, people say, what kind of culture? Because it's broad. And it's kind of beautiful how much falls under the umbrella of culture. Like you can start reading and listening and watching and just never reach the end. And to many people, that's very stressful. But there's some relief in accepting it. You know, I will never read Ulysses. So if someone wants to tell me the experience of reading Ulysses with two other books simultaneously so that they can understand Ulysses, and this is why, and this is why it's important, that's cool. My name is Sarah Germano. I'm the U.S. sports business correspondent for the FT, and my off-hours obsession um, recently has been the Jamiroquai Instagram account. I don't know what's going on in, like, Jamiroquai headquarters, but someone is managing this account now, and they've been posting all of these videos of, um, you may remember the Virtual Insanity music video. They did it in high def and re-released it, but it's basically taking me down this, like, deep nostalgia hole of music I listened to in the 90s. A book called Punch, The Delights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl by David Wondrich. And it is so droll. That's Claire Bushy, the FT Chicago reporter. It is a history of punch, which is an entire category of drinks, much like cocktails, which I did not know. And it is just full of lovely, lovely descriptions where he describes warm fellowship and conviviality and high-spirited gatherings afloat on oceans of witty talk. Now, who doesn't want to go to a party like that? (laughs) And there's like... 80 million recipes for punch in the back of this book. So have you started making punch? I pulled a number of my friends and colleagues and whether or not they would want to um, fill their cup from the flowing bowl. And (laughs) the answer was distinctly in the negative, which made me very sad. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend, we explore the idiosyncratic things we get really into when no one's watching. My colleague, Henry Mance, explains why he loves the HBO show Succession so much, and we have more of your incredible recommendations to come. But first, I have a story for you that sounds like the beginning of a joke. This is a story about that time Alice Cooper found an Andy Warhol in his garage. You know, it was so ridiculous story about, you know, having a Warhol and not realizing you had it in a garage. (laughs) I was going to start selling tickets to my garage for five minutes. You get to find whatever you find in there. That's him, Alice Cooper, the godfather of shock rock, the icon known for using guillotines and decapitated baby dolls in his shows, executions by electric chair, severed heads, the performer that brought horror to rock and roll and changed punk rock forever. 
School's out for summer. Poison. No more Mr. Nice Guy. My colleague Maria Schallenbarger recently interviewed him from his home in Arizona for FT Weekend's lifestyle magazine, How to Spend It. These days, Cooper's in his 70s, living near his grandkids, playing golf every day. And that's the Alice Cooper that showed up on the Zoom. Can you set me in this scene with you? You're going to go on Zoom and... I'm in my kitchen in Rome. Okay. And he's in his house in Arizona. His house, among other things, has been published numerous times, photographed for Architectural Digest. It's very beautiful. Mm. He lives in this super affluent bit of Phoenix called Paradise Valley and uh, plays a lot of kind of championship golf there. He's a crazy good golfer. Does he look like Alice Cooper? He absolutely look, I mean, indisputably, <laughs> un, ineluctably Alice Cooper. I mean, no makeup, possibly the vestiges of yesterday's makeup. Sure. The hair, the, absolutely the hair that remains kind of unchanged since, you know, I was three, as I remember it. He's super jovial and charming yeah. and accommodating and avuncular, which is weird because like the hair and the, the black leather and then this really uh-huh. lovely kind of welcoming grandpa vibe. I don't know if anyone doesn't know the hair, when you say the hair, what you mean, but tell me what the hair is. When I say the hair, I mean a shock of kind of blue-black dyed hair teased at the crown is probably (laughs) a fairly diplomatic way of putting it. Below shoulder length, just full-on early mid-70s glam rock. Maria was there to talk to Cooper about this print that he had and then completely forgot about for decades. The light bulb went on in my head, and I went, wait a minute, I have an Andy Warhol. (laughs) It just dawned on me, you know, and I went, where did I put that? You know, so I went back to the house, found it in the tube, and pulled it out, and it was in perfect condition. We're talking here about a limited Warhol silkscreen print, which today will be worth millions. But let's talk first about how he ended up with it. In Cooper's heyday, some of his fans and contemporaries were great 20th century artists like Salvador Dali. You know, when uh, when Groucho Marx came to see the show, he saw it as vaudeville. He saw it as sort of a dark humor vaudeville. Uh, when Dali saw it, he saw it as surrealism. Well, so everybody when, has their lens, right? Everybody yeah. had the lens that they looked through and, yeah. and saw it a different way. So when Dali saw it, you have to remember, everything was about Dali. So when Dali saw it, he, we were an extension of him. Yeah, because and then in in all honesty, we kind of were, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I got to work with Dolly, and he was the most interesting character I think I've ever I've ever worked with. Uh, There was so many things, just so many dead ends going on, and so many crazy tributaries going on with him. Maria, how does Alice Cooper fit into the late twentieth century art world? I think it's quite easy to kind of locate. Alice Cooper in the theater of the ridiculous, if one wants to, because a lot of what he does was such high spec. I mean, it's pretty camp in some ways too, isn't it? You know, Mm. he had a lot of not just cod pieces, but like bedazzled pink cod pieces. I mean, there was some really (laughs) crazy stuff in his shows, but he's also really an artist. I mean, he certainly, there was a lot of artistic intent that went into his performances, but also his songwriting Alice Cooper's forgotten Warhol piece is pretty stark. It's two colors, red and black. In the middle, in an otherwise empty room, sits an electric chair. It's spooky and on brand. And Cooper's girlfriend at the time, Cynthia Lange, gave it to him in the 70s. 
She was a model in New York City and Alice was living in New York City at the time. And she hung out at the factory a lot with Andy Warhol and his whole crew there. And so Alice would occasionally come into contact with Andy Warhol and his girlfriend, Cindy, gifted him a seriograph from a series that Andy was doing at the time called Death and Destruction. And it was called Little Electric Chair. I was using the electric chair in the show at that time. I was, uh, yeah. they were doing the, you know, we we electrocuted Alice, then we, then we went on to the hanging and then the guillotine. Yeah. But um, she put the two together and saw the uh, electric chair and said, well, that's perfect for his birthday. So she bought it. And she paid less than $2,500 for it. And they had it for a while in their apartment in New York. And then they split up eventually. And he got married and moved out to Los Angeles. And he and his wife had it hanging there for a while. And then they put it away when they moved again. It doesn't seem like Cooper loves the print, to be honest. So he rolled up the canvas and he slid it into a mailing tube along with a bunch of other art and then forgot about it for 30 years. Flash forward to a few years ago, Cooper takes his daughter to the Kentucky Derby. They're sitting in a box with the late actor and filmmaker Dennis Hopper, another counterculture icon. It kind of makes sense that they were friends. And uh, did the whole Kentucky Derby thing. We were sitting with Dennis and P. Diddy and a bunch of other people. Cooper and Dennis Hopper get to talking, and it turns out... That he just sold one of his Warhols. I think he had some really, really original stuff early, early on. Dennis Hopper had just sold his own Warhol. I don't know if he was like hard up for cash or whatever, but Christie's had sold it and they'd gotten sort of $300,000 or $400,000 for it. Even though it was not in the best of shape, he had fired two rounds of his gun into it because he came home like super high one night and I think had a, had a freak out. And then Andy Warhol ended up annotating those holes. And so it, you know, it was acknowledged by the artist and it still got him a ton of money. And suddenly Alice had this light bulb go off and said, oh my God, I have a Warhol. Cooper's putting the Warhol up for auction with a local art dealer in Arizona. It's been valued between two and a half and four and a half million dollars. And some of the proceeds will go to his foundation, Solid Rock, which is a free after-school arts program for disadvantaged kids. It goes up for auction soon, on October 23rd, which is around when Cooper goes back on tour. I didn't know that you can still see Alice Cooper on tour, but it turns out that his stage show really hasn't changed that much, despite him living a very different life. I guess it strikes me in your interview that Alice has gone from being someone who politicians considered this dangerous societal influence to being this sort of golfing, art-collecting, Christian grandfather. Well, and kind of, I don't know how, kind of joyously embedded totally. in, in his domestic life, which is yes. totally beautiful, you know? I suppose in a very unexpected way, he embodies, uh, he kind of fills the, the four corners of the, of the conventional white American male thing, but in an extremely, but then again, absolutely, completely not, which is what totally. it kind of dynamic and interesting. He's fundamentally a very happy, lighthearted person mm -hmm. who has, I think, lived an extraordinary amount and certainly probably gone to some extraordinarily dark places, but just has a lot of humor and a lot of grace in the way he approaches life and his work still. Cooper may have spent lockdown in familial bliss playing golf surrounded by his grandchildren. I had everybody here. All the kids were here. And, you know, we're sitting there going, why don't we try tap dancing? <laughs> <laughs> we all took yeah. But in our next segment, we look at a different sort of powerful family, a fictional family that hates each other. I'm talking about the return of HBO's Succession and everyone's favorite TV dynasty, the Roys. 
Season 3 will be released this Sunday, October 17th. And the FT's chief feature writer, Henry Mance, he's excited. He's just written a deep dive on the show that looks at family dynasties and the interpersonal dynamics beneath them. If you haven't watched the show, don't worry. This segment is on the surface about succession, but really, it's about family. Okay, so tell me, because I'm going to be honest, I watched (laughs) the first half of season one and the family was so horrific and so backstabbing. I'll keep watching, but I was shocked how unredeeming everybody was. Why does succession matter so much right now? That's a really interesting question. I think, like, at some stage it was to do with the Trumps and Fox News and this contamination of our politics. But I think it's much broader than that. And I think it's just a great story about power within a family, dynamics within a family, and then layered on top of the fact that there are obviously billionaires and very powerful billionaires who just behave completely appallingly. And yet we allow these people to dictate, in some cases, how our media is run, how business is run, how how politics mm. is, is run. And it's kind of a, a reminder that at the top of the society, uh, there are awful people. Succession is a show about an aging media baron who had a stroke and needs to pass his multi-billion dollar company on to one of his four children. But he doesn't want to, and it's about the power struggle that ensues. My family have disappeared. I need to know where everyone is and what everyone's thinking. You want to take down your dad without implicating yourself. Correct. And without damaging the company to the extent that you lose control at your shareholder meeting. Roman is a knucklehead. Shiv is a fake. And Kenny is screwy. No one's on my side in this. I need you to protect me, Pinky. On its face, this is a story about a fictional Rupert Murdoch-like figure and his children. But Henry says it also pulls from some of the most powerful, backstabbing, real-life families in history. So let's go through them. Right at the start of succession, there's a dynamic where the media mogul tries to twist his children's arm into signing away some of their control over the family trust. And some of them are a bit concerned about this. Now, there's a case involving Australia's richest woman, Gina Reinhart, who's a sort of mining tycoon. He's our most successful entrepreneur and earns more than $2 million an hour. Where she basically tried something very similar with her own children. At the heart of the dispute, a $5 billion trust fund for the four children set up in 1998. They took legal action against her to try and resist her. Well, we're seeking to remove my mother as trustee. And the judge eventually found that some of her methods were, you know, against her own children, closely approached intimidation. Claiming what she did amounted to serious misconduct. Another character who really looms large, I think, in the show is Robert Maxwell, who was a huge figure in British media and British public life, really. Flamboyant, charming, some say ruthless, he travels in his own yacht, owns a soccer team publishes six newspapers, including the powerful British tabloid, The Daily Mirror. He died in 1991, and just before his death, actually the Financial Times had gone through the accounts of his companies and found that the debts were far greater than had previously been supposed. Now his sons are trying to unravel the web of financial affairs the tycoon left behind. And so you have a very similar dynamic to Succession, where just as the mogul in Maxwell's case dies, but in Succession's case just has a stroke and is in a coma. But just at that moment, we become aware of these huge debts and it has a huge knock-on effect for the children who are left picking up the pieces of the family empire. Big in life, Maxwell's enduring legacy was to author Britain's biggest fraud. 
I think the one that made me laugh out loud most when reading your piece was Sumner Redstone, who was chairman of CBS and Viacom. And he couldn't speak anymore, so he had an iPad loaded with audio clips that he would, like, tap in relevant circumstances. And they were of him saying, yes, no, and fuck you. Yeah, I mean, I guess the whole whole question around succession, the reason why it's called succession is, like, it's about what happens next, what happens after the mogul. And Sumner Redstone is one of these people who just refused to believe he was going to die. He said, my plan is not to die. You know, like, <laughs> right. you know, Viacom is me. You know, my, my, my media company, CBS and Viacom, they're just me. I'm going to hang on. He hung on into his 90s until a judge ruled him unable to be chairman anymore because he couldn't speak. Right. But he had a very sort of chaotic relationship with his daughter. There were lawsuits involving his housekeeper, girlfriend. And, you know, th- that was a completely crazy state of affairs, which I'm sure is reflected in succession. I'm going to fight death as long as I can. I like it here. The show also draws inspiration from the Disneys and the Kennedys, King Lear, Ivan the Terrible, even the British monarchy. As you may know, internally, the royals don't call themselves a family. They call themselves the firm. I've read one of the writers of succession, Georgia Pritchett, do a likeness between Kendall, the oldest son who's thinking about overthrowing his father and and kind of the Meghan and I, I guess the Harry role as well mm-hmm. in the royal family. I think really the claustrophobia is the same in the royal family. And the idea that you can kind of have a fight, but you can never leave. It's not like leaving a normal business. And I think the reason that family feuds are so complicated is that you you kick one of your family members out of the, the company, but in all probability, they still have a share of it. And even if you get rid of their or buy back their shareholding, then they're still your relative. Mm-hmm. And, and because you live in this isolated existence where it's not so easy to be friends with normal people, your family matter a lot. Henry, I don't even know if I agree with this question, but this conversation still kind of makes me want to ask it. Um, do you think there are any ways in which all families are sort of run like a business? I think that's part of why succession is interesting, that it's not just about billionaires. It's about family dynamics that we all sort of are familiar with. And your relationship with your siblings, which can be one of competition sometimes, one of love, and one of sort of shared experience that you're the only people who have had to suffer your parents as parents. But actually in succession, the siblings, there is a solidarity there. And I, I think a lot of people who... A lot of people would recognize the fact that they, they're tense and they, they struggle to get out of the dynamics they had as kids and they're still sort of harking back to things that happened years ago and they're unable to fully grow up in each other's presence. But they hold on to each other because they, they need each other. With that, my chat with Henry quickly became not just a conversation about backstabbing rich people, but a conversation about family. To research this piece, one of his first stops was to a psychologist, you know, for an interview. The psychologist I spoke to was a little bit confused about why I was focusing on such dysfunctional dynamics. But for me, it's important because you watch this show and like, I think lots of people are gripped by succession and it will affect how they think of families. One of the things the psychologist explained to him was the concept of reproductive narcissism, that parents actually favor children who resemble them. Well, as a parent, these are things you're like, oh, my goodness, I hope that isn't me. <laughs> Logan Roy, the, the protagonist of, of Succession, is kind of struggling to pick an heir because none of them are exactly like him. I mean, he has these phenomenal talents that they simply can't match. And that's his problem, that he, he's trying to pick himself, mm-hmm. but he, he doesn't exist. And I wonder whether you know, all parents sort of 
have that thing where they they would kind of like their kids to have some aspects of them. Yeah. Like even if it's just playing tennis so that they can have a game of tennis with their kids or, or whatever. But that's not not quite possible. You know, you've got to you've got to love difference. There's this temptation to love what's similar about ourselves mm-hmm. in kids and that's obviously can be pretty destructive because what you're trying to ferment is individuals who yeah. live their own lives. One analyst described it to me as sometimes people who have created very successful businesses see themselves as kind of shareholders <laughs> in their own children, that they have a 50% stake in what happens. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not what being a parent is about. Being a parent is like you've sold out effectively. You know, you're no longer a shareholder quite early on. You know, in the show, even though they're all pretty awful, it's not that they don't love each other. There seems to be some semblance of love there. It sort of comes and goes. I mean, like, there's so much swearing and so much backstabbing that you're like, maybe they just hate each other. But I think it's never conclusive. You know, it's never definitive, their breaks from the family. And my, yeah, one of my favorite scenes is where this kind of bit part character who's the brother of the mogul, this guy who who has a thousand acres farm in Canada and, and so is a, is a failure compared to his brother. He's asked if he will join a rebellion against his brother. And he says, look, my brother is an, an ex-Canadian, an ex-Scot, an ex-human being, but he's still my brother. And I sort of found that really powerful. And I, I think a lot of us maybe would love that idea of there being this forgiveness no matter what within a family and this loyalty no matter what. And I think actually one of the hard things to relate to in Succession or in some of the family feuds that may have inspired it is when there is a definitive break, when siblings never go back to talking to each other, where they keep on hiring lawyers and spending millions of dollars on lawyers after years and years. And you think, come on, you know, this is family. Is there not a tie that goes even deeper? So now that we're all caught up on succession, let's continue on this journey. I've been collecting recommendations over the past few weeks from colleagues, from friends, and from you. You know, one thing that you loved, that you can't stop consuming, that you think other people should know about. I'm doing this partially because, honestly, it's really fun to build a community around this podcast and get to know you. But also partially because hearing what really interests you, it gets to a curiosity that's contagious. One listener, David Hepburn in London, recommends Nala Sinefro's album Space 1-8. He calls it one of those albums that just sounds like an instant classic. It's a dazzling array of instruments and sounds, from synths to saxophone, double bass to birdsong, all arranged over 45 minutes of transportive magic. My name is Niku Ascari. I'm the FT's US pharmaceuticals reporter, and I recommend Emily Mariko's cooking TikToks because they are so soothing. If you like cooking, if you like ASMR, she doesn't say a single word. She just chops, peels, washes. It's amazing. <laughs> Currently, I'm obsessed with Squid Game. That's Angelica Chrysostomo, the US audience engagement intern. It's a Korean show on Netflix, and it's the most popular show on the platform ever. A lot of people are evaluating their relationships with work and money and asking themselves, like, what they'll do just for money and if they should stay in positions that don't align with the rest of their values just for money. I am Peter Spiegel. I am the U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times, and I ended up becoming obsessed with 
that strange period in American history, which no one really talks about anymore. But from 1776, when we declared independence, to the convention in 1789, we kind of didn't have a government. I now have a shelf full of 24 books from 1932 to 1937. And yes, the other members uh, of the of the New York News Desk are quite annoyed at this by now. <laughs> um, and I end up lecturing them all on James Madison, James Wilson, and all these people that they don't care about. Thanks, Peter. That was great. Is it interesting? I don't yeah, know. I'm totally obsessed by it. I mean, that's its own segment. My friend Liz Miguel tells me she's gone down a fashion history rabbit hole. It started with a podcast that she really recommends called Dressed. That led to an afternoon on YouTube watching videos of people getting dressed layer by layer in every century since the 1700s. That taught her a lot about underwear, which led to some very big questions about the history of menstrual products, which led to another rabbit hole from there. Hey FT, so the cultural thing I can't stop specifically drinking, well, the thing I'm enjoying drinking, is this aperitif. It's called Chinar. That's a listener, Hannah Bobchik. And it's an Italian aperitif. It's made of artichoke, and it tastes kind of like Campari. And the way I found out about this is by watching the film Rose Island, which I also heartily recommend. And I think it's going to be the next Aperol Spritz, so... Watch this space. I'm Taylor Nicole Rogers. I'm the FT's U.S. Labor and Equality Correspondent, and I recommend a book called Garden City by John Mark Comer. It's essentially about what our jobs mean to our personal identities and how to make your work fulfilling no matter what it is, but also balance it with the rest of your life. One suggestion from that book is to implement a day of Sabbath, where you don't do anything work-related. No work, no errands, no chores, just a chance to reset. Taylor also mentioned she took the book out of the library. I love using the library. I just, I fundamentally cannot understand why people buy books. It's like (laughs) our tax dollars already bought an entire building's worth of books. Like, I, I just don't understand. Okay, well, that's your second recommendation then. Yes, the library. You're already paying for it. There's a a film called Titan. That's Raphael Abraham, our deputy arts editor, with a film rec from the London Film Festival. It's the second film from Julia Ducourneau, whose first film, Raw, was a feminist cannibal story. Uh, And uh, it's just as twisted and strange as that, about a woman who uh, survives a car crash and uh, becomes a serial killer. But it's it's sort of stomach-churning, but it's also strangely heartwarming. It's maybe the most heartwarming serial killer movie you'll ever see. Our one and only arts editor, Jan Daly, recommends The Dante Project in London at the Royal Opera House. I think anybody, even if you, even if you don't think you love contemporary dance or think it might be a bit out there, a bit weird, do try it because... I really think it's going to be magic. She also suggests going to The Freeze this weekend, one of London's most important art fairs in Regent's Park. She actually told us about the only thing she'd ever gotten from there. She didn't buy it. She won it in one of those claw machines you pay a dollar for. It's a pink silk pig. And all I can tell you without wanting to, um, you know, be too indecent is that it's nether regions, if you know what I mean are a kind of like a trigger, like a gun that you might pull and shoot. 
Yes, and uh, it's my pride of place, so it's my freeze acquisition for one pound. Eric Platt, the U.S. markets editor and an impeccable dresser, recommends anything by the designer Dries Van Noten this season. The collection is excellent. I've looked on it on Mr. Porter and in their showroom, and no one can afford it, but it's just kind of like, you know, the coats you want for the autumn, kind of what you want to be wearing if you're, like, right in this new world where you can look cool, even if you're going into the office. But you will need several thousand dollars for many of the pieces. And finally, a listener named Anj recommends a BBC series called A House Through Time. It's a show that does detective work about the inhabitants of a single house and tells a cultural history of a city through that house's inhabitants over generations. She says that in a year that's felt destabilizing, the show is a comforting reminder that many have lived through seismic changes like we have. But time went on. Those shifts didn't entirely define their lives. That's the show this week. You've been listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. Say hi. Let me know what you're into or who you want to hear on the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. Next Saturday, we're talking men's sneakers with our style columnist, Rob Armstrong. We're exploring noodles in the province of Shangxi, China, with food writer and chef Fuchsia Dunlop. And I'm speaking with the very talented novelist, Jason Mott. He's the author of the National Book Awards shortlisted novel, Hell of a Book. Actually, that's my recommendation. I didn't give one. That's it. It's such a great book. If you're looking for something to read, read that ahead of next week. It's called Hell of a Book. It's by Jason Mott. You can find links and everything mentioned in the show notes as always. There's also a special discount there just for you for half off an FT Weekend subscription, which you can also find at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Please subscribe, leave us a review and share it with some friends who like podcasts. If you like the episode, that honestly really helps the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers with special help from Alice Fordham. Breen Turner is our amazing sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragossa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We're sending a special shout-out this week to George Drake Jr. Thank you, George. And thanks to all of you. We'll find each other again next week.